0: just try it anyway How about that so <clears throat> so when 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 non from masculine are talking about orthodox they just have nothing but scorn but the other way is true the way they talk about the fight against the non frum is also just as virulent they had taken an oath never to mention the name of god by his own admission, upon becoming to the rabbi, Hirschbeer heard a relentless admonition, Hirschbear, there is a God, Hershbear. Just from the Torah, he said. Yeah, all right. In the beginning, they thought of Rabbi Nachman as a wise man, but not of the caliber of their marshal, Weasel, or Wesley, uh, the, the father of Haskalah in Germany. Later, they came to consider him as superior to Weasel in wisdom. Okay, so now listen to the following, because a lot of this has to bear on the criticism of Rabbi Nachman's stories, both from within the Jewish tradition and outside the Jewish tradition. Once the rabbi came to them and found them reading a Greek book. (coughs) To this question as to the nature of the book, they replied, it wasn't his sphere of interest. The rabbi then took the book into his hand and told them its content in great detail. In brief, they became attached with heart and soul to Rabbi Nachman and were frequent visitors in his house. Hirschbear even began to grow a beard. He also repeated to Rev the discourse that the rabbi delivered on that day. Okay. So this from, this book you this is from the Sipurim that is written in 1935 within the tradition. After the death of Rabbeinu, these Maskilim remained friends of our fellowship, particularly Noson, who had been ordered by the rabbi to speak to them on his visits to the city. Although once he came to the rabbi and said, Rabbi, I can explode, I just can't deal with them. And rabbi said, keep going back. And then once they became involved in such a complicated discussion, Rev. exclaimed, what did the Rebbe want from me? Now listen to this. Fast forward 30 years. It's now 1834. Rebbe died in 1811. People are coming every year now to try and make a kibbutz by his grave. Okay. But the savrana... That is another Hasidic dynasty who was in town, who wanted to rush run run the Breslavas out of town, instigated a smear campaign against Ribnossen and the Breslaver Hasidim. Opponents denounced Ribnosin to the Russian authorities, claiming that he was a false prophet whose activities opposed the interests of the Tsar. That's called being what? A Masr. Right? There's nothing worse. So, you muster your opponent to the government. Rabnosan was arrested, charged with treason, and exiled to his hometown in Nemirov and placed under house arrest. Now it's coming a week before Rosh Hashanah, and he's in charge of the whole kibbutz. <coughs> Rabnosan obtained a travel permit and journeyed to Uman in secret. He was discovered and reported to the authorities and arrested on the night before Rosh Hashanah. Now, assimilated Jews, Moshe Landau, who lived in Uman and been friendly with Reb Nachman, intervened on Reb Nossin's behalf and allowed him to remain in Uman for Rosh Hashanah. Next time it happened, they tried to murder Reb Nossin. Mamish to murder him. These other Hasidim, they were not just other Hasidim, they were... Anyone, uh, believe me, Breslov didn't have a good reputation. Uh, you know, you don't go around saying our Rebbe is the only Rebbe and not get into trouble with the local yokels who have their own Rebbes. There was the Shpala the Savrana, there were three different groups that, if you read Zema, um, Asaf's book now on the dark side of Hasidut, he goes into the uh, Lubavitcher, the dark side of the Lubavitcher movement, yeah. the dark side of the Rijna movement, and the pursuit of the the a very interesting book. He's a professor at, um, at Baraylam. So they would say that they're afraid that the <coughs> religion is being diluted and that we need to remove this. Religion. I'm not sure that, that it was a theological thing. I think it was much more... Power. Um, power. Yeah, power struggle for, for the local... But I think he's right. Well, how do they justify it to themselves being a Moser? Justify justified by saying that they are try out to destroy, or... Well, I think, I think they're doing what they did to the, to the Chabadskas. They're saying this is a cut. Yeah, that's what Every time you say, well, that's a cut. Text. Yes, uh, a sect. Cult. A cult. Cult. A cult. cult. Cult, a sect, yeah. right? A cut, a class of its own, <coughs> it's a sect. Well, there's halachic problems with that. You're separating yourself from the tzippo, you're starting your own shul, your own minion. you're diluting the minion here, you're, you're, you have a different shulchan oruch, what, what is this? So you have to fix it. You have to, you have to fix it. it, right. So both Braslav and Chabad came under this mustering business. <clears throat> but on two occasions, it was the maskilim of Uman who saved the day. Which makes me feel that Rabbeinu saw that into the future and said, you're gonna need them one day. Don't, don't, don't. We've got enough problems with our own other Hasidic groups. Don't knock them. They are powerful, they're well connected, and they will help you one day. Wow. Okay, now I wanna to go to the masculine sources because this is, I've only recently discovered this. Um, <clears throat> and, and then we'll stop. Okay, so what should we conclude now from the nth from sources? Take the maskilim to have a comparison in our minds. From the in sources, the maskilim um, show the power of Reb Nachman to engage all types. All types, okay. It in shows the paradoxical nature of Rabbeinu, who was able to see even the dark places of Apichorosis, the spark of <coughs> the Theus of the um and not to give up on these three people. Now from the Maskilim sources, what was the relationship of Rav Nachman with the Maskilim Again, I'm trying to make a case for leakage between two separate worlds that Beryl Wine and the scroll people have said are hermetically sealed, right? The Orthodoxy, the Haskalah, right, and the Bundists and the Zionists. From the Maskilim, we hear of friendly relationships. That existed between Rabbi Nachman and the Maskilim, in the Russian Jewish periodical *Sion* (Zion), published in Odessa. And this is um, <clears throat> uh, 1862. He, the Russian Jewish period, writes as follows: Rabbi Nachman was a grand, great was a grandson. But he wasn't. It was a great grandson of the Balshemtov. He was a man of parts, but inclined to mysticism. He was f- a friend of Hirschberg Hurwitz, of woman. So this is a Haskola periodical in 1862. Later famous as a professor of oriental languages at Cambridge University. We'll come back to that. That's too interesting to let go. Hurwitz would read and explain to Rabbi Nachman the German classics, to which he listened very attentively. If an idea appealed to him, he would incorporate it in his own works, ascribing to it a Hasidic master." Now, you have to understand, when these guys met, they hung out in 1810. The stories were written 10 years before. So this is hagiography going on here. It's just as bad as the Frumi hagiography, but it's hagiography. Well, it's it's, it's looking back at history, and filling in the gaps in the way you wanted to see. Meaning, we want Rabbi Nachman to look like a really good Muskel and that his stories come from Grimm's fairy tales and Hans Christian Andersen. And how do I know? Because the Muskeelen were teaching him the stories and he would grab those stories. Once Horowitz read to him a passage in Schiller's drama, Kabale und Liebe, in which the father, reproaching his daughter for thinking of her lover even in church, receives the following retort. Should not the Almighty be delighted over the fact that my joy in the best of his creatures leads me to forget the creator himself? Now that's in Shilla, but that's also in early Hasidut. That understanding that my dveikah sometimes will lead me to forget the Rabboni Shalom because we and him are one. So they pick that out that he was reading him from Schiller. This is in 1862. How the hell do you know what he was reading to him in 1810? The rabbi was deeply impressed by this reflection, and shortly thereafter, it appeared in his own works, not in the mouth of Louise, of course, but in the mouth of a Hasidic master. The writer does not indicate in which of Rabbi Nachman's works this idea of Schiller was incorporated. I know of the father and the daughter, and the father gets upset with the daughter, and he, and, and, and he curses her, and the next day she's gone. I know the father and the daughter of the exchange children. I mean, there are a lot of father and daughter relationships going on, but that doesn't make it Shilla. <laughs> Gradually, the followers of Rabbi Nachman began to resent their master's association with the heretics, and that's true. We have that in Reb already. And sometimes, Rabbi Nachman sharply retorts them, you, you're not even worth a feather on my, on my coat. I can blow you away. But these guys I have what with to talk. I mean he would really be sharp when they would criticize him or ask him. Some openly chided him on that score. To these criticisms Rabbi Nachman answered variously. Okay. It is clear that Rabbi Nachman hoped to achieve something in his conversations with the Maskile. They too had their calculations. They thought that in revealing to Rebbe Nachman the beauty of Haskalah, he could easily be won over. (laughs) Mm. Accordingly, only Hershbear and Landau figure in the stories. Chayel Herkowitz is only mentioned once, and that at the beginning, at the role of the examiner. Remember, he's the father-in-law, he's older. Also, he died earlier. The younger men, in their enthusiasm for Haskalah, might have thought that since Rabbi Nachman was poetically inclined, he could succumb to the Schiller poetry. <clears throat> Apparently, he, Rav Nachman did not take them too seriously. In his relations with them, you can see from the inside a slight note of contempt. And we see that in the Sipuri maasiot which one day we will do, the story of the sage and the simpleton, in which the sage knows so much philosophy and theology. And in the other story of the precentor, in which there are French people who are so grandiloquent, they're so eloquent, that the whole country takes off this wonderful style of flowery Hebrew. Now at that point, the Haskalah movement was going through this rediscovery of Hebrew and the use of florid language in recreating Hebrew. The which modern Hebrew, by the way, is based on. Now is this still the, the article in the Zion magazine? No, no, this is just in the, the, book. the, in the book, right. So I just now want to talk about Chaim Hirsch, Hirsch, Hirsch Ben Hurwitz, Chaim Heikel, and I want you to know that after Rav Nachman died, um, what happens to Hirsch Bear? It is really a, it's a, it's a really an amazing story. Chaim Heikel, the son of Hirsch Bear, sorry, Hirsch Bear, the son of Chaim Heikel. <coughs> What happens to him? So it turns out that, in fact, Hirschbeer is known to the inside story for his games of chess with Reb Nachman and for having read aloud German stories to him. In 1825, he encountered insuperable debts, and we're going to see with Max Lilienthal the same thing has him coming to New York. Um, So Hirschberg moves to England and renames himself Hedwig Bernard, professor of Hebrew at Cambridge and a Christian. He publishes a number of books mostly about the Rambam and we would know nothing about him except that he had a pupil Frank Chance and Frank Chance absolutely adores his teacher. Now whether he was A professor or not is unclear, it's unlikely. We know that at this time in the 1830s, um, the Cambridge schools had decided of theology and divinity, had decided to um, employ Jews um, for the sake of reacquainting themselves with the Hebrew text of the Bible which had been translated into Greek and then into the Vulgate into Latin and they wanted to get back at the original So they got these Jews who were living in London to come up to Cambridge and they were given a stipend um, And they would know English and they would know Hebrew and they would translate Frank chance did not know Hebrew and We still to this day have and it's online Herman Hedwig's translation of the book of Job from Hebrew into English. The front piece of the book includes his portraits. And I thought I had it, <laughs> but I'll bring it for you next week. And you see a man with a dog toler, uh, the church, oh, a, a churchman sitting by some books. And. Um, oh. <coughs> So what was he no, doing? and he was earning money he was earning money um, and unfortunately in order to do that he may well have had to be uh, he had to convert it's possible that he received a stipend and worked in the, thing. it's unclear and it's unlikely that he would have gotten a full professorship as a Jew even as a Mishunmit um, He lost his sight. There is doubt uh, that it made his achieving uh, his professorship easier by being Mashumad. It wasn't required. Um, his predecessor in Cambridge was Joseph Cruel, who was an unconverted Jew, but, but he openly opposed um, missionary activities directed at the Jews. There was a lot of missionary activities against, uh, for the Jews at this point in time. A lot of missionary activities. In fact, uh, the, um, Bernard. His name is in the Church of Saint Martin in the Fields. If you go to London, and it's a very important church. It's near Trafalgar Square, and it's uh, it's a church that played every noon throughout the Blitz. So, in the heart of the British uh, mind, it's it's a very sacred place because it withstood Hitler and. If you walk into the Church of St. Martin in the Fields, and they still have concerts to this day, Um, in fact the Academy of St. Martin in the Field comes from the Church of St. Martin in the Field because the acoustics, conducted by Neville Mariner, Mariner. (laughs) okay? And they do all this ancient music because it it lends itself to that. Well, in there is is a tablet, of all the Jews who had been converted by that particular church in Cambridge, and his name is there. And um, we still have facsimiles, I'm gonna pass this around, of his handwriting, and in Cambridge. Now, he gets a letter from the famous uh, Maskil in uh, Uman, Jacob Eichenbaum, known for his great mathematical expertise, uh, and he chastises Bernard uh, for changing his name and for becoming a Meshumet. Um, and that letter to him was published in uh, in Sion in 1862, and as a separate pamphlet in 1867 in the Haskalah periodical. So we shouldn't think that the Maskilim wanted to convert. It was different than the Germans. They didn't want to see their ticket into society because they weren't that enamored with the non-jewish society of eastern europe it wasn't very highbrow but they did want jews to get out of the pale they did want jews to get out of the shtetl and out of the ghetto which brings me to end up with the following observation and what have i learned from this your homework is to read the chosen again it'll take you two hours it's very quick and i want you to read it because If you think today the way we study Talmud, the way we do Dafyomi, the way uh, people like um, uh, Zornberg quotes freely, Jonathan Sachs quotes freely from non-Jewish sources, they would be considered masculine a hundred years ago. The way we are now at YU looking at alternative texts of the Gomorrah to see what fits the Pshat best, the way they did at JTS or whatever college it was called, Potok called it, um, in 1951, that is today's orthodoxy. And today, no one in Bar Ilan would be learning a Black Gemara without using the Bar Ilan program, which gives you seven different manuscripts of the Gemara to give you the best fit. You don't have to use Pillpool to say, "Well, we can fit the squeeze," and there's a better text. And the question is, where does this end? For Bar Ilan University, being a frum university, biblical criticism starts with Joshua 1:1; doesn't go back meaning that they do not feel the integrity of the torah itself can be messed with why for ideological reasons but you go up the road 45 minutes away to hebrew university we can dissect the torah as well so this kind of yesterday's api becomes the tools of technology of today's orthodoxy and i'm not even talking about the way we have imbibed goyesha minhagim or goyesha tools of technology into our orthodoxy. I'm not even going into that because that's reductive. I'm talking about the basic tenets of our faith. Torah minhashomayim, the way this tablet article, where is it, Um, who's got my tablet article? Um, No. Uh, the way the tablet article asks that question, you know, what do you do if you are learning during the day at Hebrew U and dissecting the text? And at night you're coming home and your little kid in Chedah is saying, Tati's Torah You know, wh- what do we do? And I am suggesting that it's, a, it's not such a black and white. Now, it is black and white in the black hat orthodox world of Lakewood because they feel they're carrying the torch Uh, of Torah true Judaism. So in those Hadarim, they do the minimum required by the state of New Jersey. So it's not like you can just say you can't get an education. So Valozhin lost, even though Valozhin closed its doors because it refused to allow mathematics into the curriculum, every little cheder has the curriculum every cheder in New York every right wing a uh, has to do a minimum for the state standards so you know what I'm trying to say is that history is always the story of the victors and we have to go back and understand how complex these various streams have mutually fertilized each other now I haven't even spoken about religious Zionism, where the Zionists were anti-orthodox, anti-religious, that's a whole different story and I don't even want to get into the history of Zionism and how Reb Me'er Barilan and the Mizrahi are filled with rabbis from the old time who are big Talmud Echachamim, but who feel that Zionism is a legitimate answer to the solution of the Jewish question. And certainly not after the Holocaust, when people like Taichtal Tal and, and the Munkachar Rebbe's son-in-law, son-in-law, right? Got me scared there. The Munkachar Rebbe's own son-in-law, the Cholon a huge Eloi, you know, became a state, state rabbi, Shtotrov, in Cholon for the, for the Zionist entity. Um, so w- what I'm saying is that there is leakage and that it's not a black and white history that you see and that um, it is these noble points of, of interaction that are so interesting uh, between what is essentially uh, one of the greatest Hasidic Rebbers ever and the three Maskilim. And next week, we will talk about the interaction between Max Lilienthal on behalf of Tsar Nicholas uh, with the two great leaders of Lithuania, the Tzemach Tedek and Rebitzel Voloshen. Thank you.